All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode. I have a very special guest with me here today, Richard White, who has been part of the first YC batch and one of the last YC batches. So he's been through the full arc of startup life in, in Silicon Valley, seeing, you know, Paul Graham in the first batch and with Jessica Livingston still cooking the meals to now this being obviously huge batches. So welcome, Richard. Really happy to have you on the show here. Well, thanks for having me. And to give people some chronological background, you've been a builder, a product engineer, a startup founder a couple of times. You started, as I mentioned, a while ago in 2005, I think you were with Justin Kahn and Emmett, the Twitch founders, part of the first YC batch working on Kiko back then. You've since built user voice and now you're working on Fathom. Maybe just give us the quick intro, the cliff notes, who is Richard and what's sort of your background? Yeah. So originally kind of a classic kind of computer science programmer did actually a lot of like website building in, in like high school and, and IT work in high school and then went and got a computer science degree. And then kind of early in my career actually and with Kiko kind of transitioned into being what I'd call like a design engineer. So I ended up doing a lot of product design work and that's like actually how I ended up working with Justin and Emmett on basically the startup before Twitch. Is I kind of like cold emailed them and says, your product is really cool, but it's design is pretty garbage. And let me help you with that. Probably one of the most impactful emails in my life. And so, yeah, so worked with, with them for, for a bit, for a minute there on Kiko, which is basically Google Calendar before Google Calendar. And then, yeah, after that transition to doing user voice, which was kind of, you know, my, my baby for 12 years from inception to where it is today. And so. You know, and that, that was a similar role, kind of product design programming in the early days. And, and then more recently transition over to Fathom. But yeah, I think that the, the common threads through all these things is I really like building. I really like building, first of all. What gets me up in the morning is not revenue, but like people using things I build or things I build by proxy through great teams and things that are kind of like productivity driven. But, you know, I had an opportunity actually to join Twitch as one of the co-founders back when it was Justin TV. Here with Justin from Justin.tv, which is a website that broadcasts your life live 24-7 from your point of view. That's right, 24-7, all day, every day from this camera. How does it work? It's rigged to your hat and it just transmits the signal? Yeah, I clip it onto my hat and it goes to our backpack, which uh, has some cell phone data cards in it and streams live 24-7 over the internet. Everything? Everything from you know going on dates to walking around the street to having business meetings, everything is on camera. So even now- and I passed on that opportunity, which is probably a mistake in retrospect, because I was like, well, this is so far from kind of like my, my productivity, a happy place, right? It was Justin strapping a camera to his head and I was like, I don't, see a real design problem here. I see a lot of problems here, but I don't see design problems here. So yeah, you know, builder, designer, kind of, you know, ornery designer, if you will, right? Uh, perfectionist and uh, yeah, kind of lifelong startup guy. Love it. And you talked about it in the past that you had a couple of those cold emails. And I always say, don't ask, don't get. People don't send enough cold emails. I think you reached out cold to to Justin and Emmett back then, then you reached out also to become part of the Zoom program. How do you think about these cold emails and how you have to phrase them that people actually respond? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm very much like an internal focused kind of like CEO or, or builder, right? Like I, I did kind of want to put my head down or like write code or work on the product. So it always takes me out of my comfort zone to do one of these. And it's usually my thing of last resort. So for example, you know, we got into the Zoom apps platform where we're now the number one app in the Zoom app marketplace, but we didn't 
we weren't originally invited to that program. And in fact, I asked a bunch of people like for intros to the right people. And eventually kind of as like, almost as like a last gasp attempt was like, I'm just going to cold email the person who's charged this program and give him my best pitch and see if it resonates. I do think it's, this is like one of the hidden secrets of Silicon Valley that a well-written, like clearly personalized, clearly thoughtful, like cold outreach email goes like a long way. I know when I get those, you know, I always feel like even maybe just for karmic reasons, like I'll read it, right? I mean, I'll do what you asked me to do, but I will definitely take the time to like read it and consider it. And I don't think most people realize that they, I get a bunch of like really lazy ones, right? Just kind of like clearly mass produced sort of blah, blah. But when I get things that like are clearly personalized, I take the time. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Going back to the very beginnings with Kiko, talk a little bit about that experience. I think I, I heard Justin Kahn talk about how the Google Calendar was announced shortly after they had started the project and that was sort of a killer for them. And then, you know, Justin TV came, talk about these early days, the first time at the rodeo and, and then how you transitioned to user voice. Yeah. I, you know, I did a bunch of startup stuff on my own. I grew up in North Carolina, which is actually where I am today because I'm traveling. I grew, you know, I kind of grew up doing startup stuff myself and I actually, I think was pretty much getting burned out on it because no one in North Carolina, or at least I couldn't find people in North Carolina that wanted to do that sort of thing. And so I was like, oh, maybe I just need to go work at IBM. And so I was really thankful that I like, you know, this, this, you know, random chain of events that got me working with Justin and Emmett and, you know, working out of the Y Combinator office, which at the time was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. And across the room from us was Alexis and Steve from Reddit. And then Aaron Schwartz was there and a few other people were there. And so in one, it was, it was just really exciting to be around people that had the, like, had that like startup energy that were like, this is the, this was like their default assumption, right? I, I was very fortunate to grow up with a couple of parents that were both entrepreneurs. And so like my default assumption was always like, you should be an entrepreneur, right? Not you should go get a job. And I've, I think maybe that's why I'm a really bad employee, but it was really exciting to fall into a group of people that also were default entrepreneurs uh, seemingly. Um, yeah. And so then we started working on Kiko, I think, you know, I, I think we often say like, oh yeah, like Google Calendar came out. Of course we like folded up shop, but I think the real answer there was, I remember being in a car ride with Justin Emmett and we were kind of searching for direction. And at one point I remember being like, have any of us used a calendar before? Cause we were all like 23 to 25 at the time. And I remember like, we were like, no. And then I was like, maybe we're not going to be the people to make a billion dollar business out of calendaring, given that we ourselves don't know the the problem. It's funny because user voice was almost, you know, the, the inspiration for user voice was like Reddit for customer feedback in a lot of ways. And it came from me watching the Reddit guys do what they do and, and thinking about how could you use that for customer feedback? And I thought about that because on Kiko, I struggled with customer feedback because, because we had no internal, like real vision for like exactly what this product should do. We were very externally focused on what do users think it should do? And very quickly, you know, I think we had like 5,000 daily users. So very quickly it was, I can't possibly keep track of all these signals coming in. And that was kind of the genesis for let's do something like Reddit for feedback so I can at scale understand what people want from me. But I think one of the things, you know, since then, like user voice, Fathom, I also did some like open source projects that were really great in terms of like honing my programming skill, but also getting me connected with great programmers. But all these things were unlike Kiko, I was building something that I had the problem, right? And I feel like that's also like a, as someone who likes building productivity stuff, a real hack, just build something that like, oh, I have this problem. And then I find out later, like, turns out like I'm not alone. A lot of other people have this problem. It just makes 
it makes the process so much easier when I don't have to completely put myself outside my own. Completely agree. I mean, people talk about founder product fit these days. And I think there's just too many founders who are chasing, you know, verticals or ideas that, that are fundable. And if you go one level deeper, you see that all they want is to quickly scale it, quickly sell it, thinking about the exit from day one. And those founders who are really passionate about the product and experience, you know, the, the pain themselves, it's easier for them to build a great product. It's easier for them to scale it and to credibly stick with it for a long time through the ups and downs, I would say. And on user voice, I looked into it. And as you mentioned, the first sort of announcement, the press announcement described it as the Reddit for customer feedback. And you talked about sitting across the Reddit guys in the first YC batch. I think TechCrunch described it as a focus group for companies that can't afford focus groups. And then it seems like there was a second iteration or let's say a second version of user voice, which was this feedback widget. Talk about sort of the product, how it emerged and how it sort of transitioned over time. Yeah. So it, it was interesting because this was during a phase where actually I have a bunch of other little projects that never really got out of the incubation phase. And I actually had a partner at the time, this guy Lance, and him and I were doing like, we would do like three months of consulting work. And then we do like three months on the startup idea. And like the consulting work would pay for us not to get paid for the startup idea. It was enough to like incubate an idea. And in the first iteration of that, we worked on this like time tracking app that I was building and built on the side called Slim Timer. And then on the second iteration, we were building user voice. And so what was really nice is that we had this like pre-built test harness because we had this like other app and it had enough users to be interesting. And we were like, well, we kind of know, we kind of know what the top feedback is from this community because we've been doing this, but like, what's as a test, like set up a user voice, like plug it in, like, you know, drive, like put a bunch of ads inside the app saying like, give us your feedback, go to the site and fill it out. Right. And vote things up and see if it actually can like replicate the knowledge we have from like many, many months of working on this. And so it was a nice little test harness and we did it. And I think we were shocked that like within 24 hours, like, oh my gosh, we have like the top 10 list of most requested like features and problems. And so we kind of were like, oh my gosh, we're onto something. That's why we like went beyond our three month window and kept building on it. But very quickly we realized that people weren't getting the same outcomes we were. They weren't getting this great like 24 hour experience, right? Where like you turn this thing on immediately, you have this wealth of feedback. And we realized that most people's default assumption was, oh, okay, yeah, I want to get some feedback. I'm going to put a link in the footer of my website that says feedback. No one's clicking that, right? Like, you know, the, there's been links and footers of websites that say feedback since the dawn of the internet. And they almost always went to places where it didn't matter, right? It was kind of a catch-all for like the, the noisy Karen in your, in your customer base, right? And so we were like, just one weekend, we're figuring like, how do we... How do we fix this? Because it's just, it's an on-ramp problem, right? If you get people to the site, the site performs well, the app performs well. And we were just like, let's just put a big red button, like on the side of the page, it's this feedback. That'll like really shock people and be like, wait, what's this, right? Like if there's something above the fold that's like big and red, that's this feedback. And that was, yeah, it was a very simple idea. And it really worked well in terms of like broke people's mental models and got and really like 10X generally the number of amount of feedback that people would get from their user voice just by deploying that. There's a lesson there about like, you know, building things, IP that you can't really defend, right? Like now you, it's trivial to rebuild one of these tabs. If you look across the internet, now there's tabs on the side of all sorts of websites, but for the, for a window there, it was, it was just us doing it. And it was like a really impactful thing in terms of fixing a core, a core mechanic. Talk about early traction that you had. And I think you 
you quickly onboarded major logos, major clients, managed to what is nowadays called fund strapping, that you raise a small seed and then basically be able to be profitable and fund strap it for a while on a smaller seed round. And then I think in 2015, you raised a series A as well, seven and a half million series A. Talk about the whole journey in the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, like I said, I did that company for 12 years. In a lot of ways, it was like three different companies. You know, there was this company in the beginning, which was very much kind of bottoms up freemium model. And we, you know, we were completely free and to get started because there was kind of this like virality to the product, right? People that used it, you know, if, if, if company X set up a user voice and, and you were a user of company X's product and you went and gave feedback on that, you would then be like, oh, that's cool. I want one of these for my product. And so we intentionally went after what I call builder communities. We went after, you know, design tools and developer tools. And at that point, like early social media tools. So we had, uh, if it's going to date me a little bit, like things like TweetDeck, right? Like the, one of the top like Twitter apps we had. Stack Overflow was a bigger one, right? It was a big one. I think Stack Overflow itself generated like 4,000 other user voice accounts. It's like a staggering amount of accounts, right? And so we had this intentional strategy where we're going to give away the thing for free just to like get it out there in the wild. And then at some point we'll pivot and like add on premium features. And so it grew quite rapidly in the beginning. I think, you know, on the order of roughly like 40% per month. And that allowed us to secure that, the, the funding you mentioned, the 800K, which you know, at the time wasn't really a small seed round. That was kind of like, you know, a pretty standard seed round right now. It's like a micro seed round, right? By modern standards. But in 2008, that was pretty normal. Yeah. So we kind of bootstrapped it with, with that kind of speed. And then we kind of pivoted to monetization and everything went pretty well. Like we actually, I think, got to a million dollars in revenue, a million dollars run rate in like 10 months after turning on, on, turning on the paid plans. And so it went really well, but you know, there's kind of this to zoom back out and kind of like, there's almost like this, that phase where it was like freemium selling to startups. The problem is startups had like high, high churn, high, like retention numbers. And so then we kind of like actually kind of pivoted to almost like customer support for startups. And we're kind of like a, you know, a Zendesk competitor for a little bit and then completely just got out of selling to startups and just found out like, this is not like actually turns out, you know, we had a problem like user voice was built to actually solve a problem where I've got a couple thousand users and I can't understand them. And back in 2005, maybe 2010, because there weren't a lot of startups, you know, you could get to five to that 10,000 users, right? At some point it became like people would launch their products and they'd have a hundred people on their website. And I'd be like, okay, you don't need a tool to like help you aggregate thousands of voices. You've got, you can count on three hands, all of your users, you should just talk to them. And so there kind of became a sea change and we kind of looked at the market and said, well, who has a lot of users? Well, turns out it's like Microsoft and Adobe. And so we basically pivoted the company again and went back to our roots of focusing on product feedback, but focusing on it for more established or high growth companies. And that's kind of where it is today. And, you know, it was actually, and then almost like an act 3.5 where we went to focusing also on like feedback from internal teams, like success teams and sales teams and whatnot. But so it, it lived a lot, a lot. And I think, you know, it was, we raised that a kind of on that last transition to, we finally figured out, oh, we're, we're actually a mid-market enterprise company. We're not necessarily a startup company. The, the, the value for startups is like, too well. Super interesting. That notion of you had sort of three different startups in one or three different companies in one, yep. you know, starting with the, let's say bottoms up, go to market motion, really like product led growth before EGL was even a thing. And then, you know, catering to other startups and then, you know, going upstream to the more corporate accounts and to the larger companies. 
And what's your involvement with user voice today? Are you still involved? You're obviously still a founding shareholder, but what's sort of your day-to-day? -day? I mean, we mentioned in the beginning, you're actually in the offices of user voice, but other than that, what's your involvement? Yeah. So I'm actually on the board. I'm the chairman of the board for user voice. We were able to kind of promote within this guy, Matt Young, who was our originally kind of our VP of engineering to basically be the new CEO of user voice about two years ago. And he's been doing a fantastic job with it. So that's also kind of an interesting transition too, is, you know, what is it like to turn over the keys to your, your, you know, your first car sort of thing. But I gotta say like, yeah, I kind of wish I had done it years earlier, right? Like it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think yeah, after doing it for 12 years, you've kind of, you've pulled out all the tricks, you know, and sometimes it's time for like a fresh perspective on stuff. And that's what Matt has brought. And so it's been, been quite nice and obviously allows me to, to focus on, on something new and fathom. Yeah. I think you mentioned it in the past that some of your peers in Silicon Valley, let's take Justin Khan. He has had four startups in that time frame, right? I think he's actually had four startups this year, but yeah, he's <laughs> like, he, he's had four like majorly funded startups. I think now we're probably on five, but yeah, like I think to most of my friends, it's a strange comparison because yeah, they've, I've been, it's one thing. It's almost like I've been traveling at a different speed than them, right? They've lived three lives while I've been on this one. But again, that's owing to the fact that really it was like three different businesses. And I always ask myself at the end of every year, am I uniquely qualified to like lead this company? And is this company uniquely qualified to teach me something? 11 out of 12 years, the answers to both those questions were yes. And I think that's because I did get a lot of exposure to top down, bottom up, like, you know, what is, I ran the marketing team for a bit or in the sales team for a bit. And a lot of what we're doing at Fathom wouldn't have happened if I didn't really have that context of really understanding, you know, I, I'm someone who kind of likes to do it all, right? Or at least understand how to do it all to at least like a, you know, 60th percentile kind of like, you know, passing grade just barely. And so it's, you're supposed to like a very long kind of like finishing school or B school for me in startups. And now transitioning to Fathom, you built that company in the midst of the perfect storm for video conferences at a point where everybody was just worried of the next couple of weeks and basically getting coffee in the morning. <laughs> How in the hell did you decide this is the time for me to start fresh and start something new? What's well, funny, I think you, I think I saw a, a tweet or a LinkedIn post from you talking about like the dissatisfaction cycle of like Silicon Valley, where it's like founders want to become VCs and VCs want to be influencers. And it's funny because I think in most of my friend group, most folks have now kind of, or not most, but like a large percentage of them have like, either their companies have grown up and become really big or they matriculated into kind of like being a VC. And it's weird. The VC path is like never really interests me whatsoever. And near the end of user voice, we did some things where I, I got a taste of like starting from zero again on some new products and new projects. And I was like completely reinvigorated. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot like, I really love just pushing pixels with a, with a small team. And so let me try to get back to that. And it, you know, and, and some of the inspiration came from some of my stuff at user voice where we were working on new products and we were doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of zoom calls myself. I was doing a lot of user research. I think beginning of 2020, I think the first month of 2020 or first six weeks, I did something like 300 zoom calls for user research. And I was like in, in the service of this other product we were building. And, but the process of doing that, I was like, Oh my God, this like trying to take notes and talk to people thing is really terrible. Like I'm single threaded, right? As soon as I have to like type out my notes, like my face goes like expressionless, my mouth stops moving. It's very awkward for all involved. As soon as I kind of like came on that problem was just thinking about some of the shifts in the engineering landscape, right? Like transcriptions become more commoditized. There's now a pretty much a single video conferencing provider. There's a market leader in video conferencing in a way that hadn't been 
done before. There's actually like good APIs, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, we can really do something here and built out some, some prototypes and got really excited about them and just got really high conviction very early on because again, it was a problem I had. And then we built out a prototype that like didn't quite solve my problem, but like it solved it enough that I could be like, okay, I think if we keep following this thread, pulling this thread, we're going to be really onto something. And so it never really felt like a risk. And honestly, it's like the pandemic was almost kind of this weird kind of orthogonal backdrop because our target users in a lot of ways were sales, customer success, people doing a lot of customer calls, user researchers. They were already on Zoom, right? Like the pandemic moved all of our, moved everyone's internal meetings on Zoom, but we always thought customer meetings were more important. Like we're going to be more like, more aware we were going to succeed anyways. So it, it kind of just, it, you know, it was this nice thing that everyone now is on Zoom and Zoom has a lot more money to invest in these types of programs. But, but yeah, it was just this weird kind of like, well, we're doing a startup and everything around is weird, but you know, everything's weird when you're doing a startup anyways, right? If there was ever a time to hole up in your house and like just work on something nonstop for like 18 months, right? Then I can fully relate to getting reinvigorated if you dive back into building product and it's sort of this honeymoon phase in the beginning when you have the first version, the MVP out. Every weekend, it's a new iteration. It's a new feature I'm adding. I know this feeling. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's great. It, it, it was also exciting because it was different this time too, right? Like the first time around with user voice, it was like, I'm writing code. I'm falling asleep on my laptop every night. And this time around, it was, I started with like some of the best engineers I've worked with over my last 15 years, right? And so it really felt like I was speed running a video game I'd played in the past. And so like that also is exciting where you're just like, oh, wow, like, we think it and like put a few pixels down on a Figma and a few days later, it's real, right? And, and we just were moving a lot faster than I had before because I feel like startups are like starting at your first startup is like being dropped into Minecraft for the first time, right? Like I'm like, I don't know what to do, right? Like, you know, versus like, you know, after watching a couple hours of YouTube videos and getting dropped into Minecraft and being like, cool, I know exactly the first 10 moves of the game here, right? Absolutely, I love that and uh, you know, Every time it gets quicker, you have the playbook, you have the team in place. Let's talk about the core product of Fathom. On a high level, it is a note taker for Zoom, but it is not a plain and simple transcription app. It is a smart note taker. So it lets you highlight important parts. So Fathom is an app, a free app for Zoom that records your calls, transcribes your calls, and gives you this helpful uh, control panel to highlight the important moments of the call. So instead of trying to reach my keyboard and type up some notes when I hear something interesting, I simply click on one of these customizable buttons. After the call is over, you get instant access to the call recording, your transcript, and all of the parts that you highlighted. So that you can go in and write up a note, an auto-generated call summary that you could share with your team, or have that call summary automatically synced over to your CRM. It's available on the Zoom App Store, but walk us through the core features of Fathom yeah, so we we started off with basically just like, can we, how can I get the like recording? And we actually did this, or, you know, my, my experience originally was like, I'm on these, all, all these calls, I'm like furiously typing notes and not really typing notes, I'm like typing like mnemonics, right? I'm typing like one word things that like right after the call, I have to go back and like flesh out. And I have like a 10 minute window where my brain will remember like the nuance of what that person said and I can kind of like flesh out my notes. So it's kind of a high stress thing, right? Like talk and type. And then after the call, like time sensitive task, clean up those notes, make them make sense and then share them with the team. And honestly, you know, the first two steps are like a personal pain, but the third step is kind of a shared like communal pain where it's like, I'd share, you know, I do 300 zoom calls. 
I like, I get really excited. I hear a lot of amazing like anecdotes and, and insights. I go compile these notes, take a lot of, spend a lot of time compiling it, put it in front of my team and my team just goes, okay. And kind of shrugs, right? Cause like a lot got lost in translation there. And so what we started with was, well, can I just like, can you just give me kind of like a video editor for my Zoom calls? And so we said like, okay, cool. We'll like download that. We'll, you know, record it using Zoom cloud. We'll download the recording and then I can go back in and just like pull out snippets of it and show it to the team. And I did that and it worked pretty well. Like it was a lot better experience for them. Right. In that like, okay, hearing a 30 second clip of customer getting excited is, is way better than my notes. But from my perspective, it wasn't, you know, for those first two parts of the problem, it didn't really work because I had to wait one zoom cloud recordings take like 15 to 30 minutes, sometimes like a couple hours to get there. So like now I've got to wait hours after the call. And then I've got to go into the call and be like, where was that like important part? Right. And so I've like created a new kind of work where like my net amount of work is kind of the same. Now I'm just doing different work. And I think, you know, humans are like, if we're going to change behavior, it needs to be like an order of magnitude better experience, not like slightly better. And so I very quickly realized, okay, we need it to be, we need to get the video faster. And I remember telling the team, I was like, cool, we need to get the recording within like, I don't know, a minute. And then we got to a minute. I was like, eh, it's still not fast enough. Probably needs to be there within like 10 seconds. And I remember, you know, this is one of those things with the beginning. It seems like that's not possible. But eventually now we get to like, we get the recording within five seconds. And that was still pretty good. So now I don't have to wait to do it. But I realized I still have to go back in and like review the call. And you know, the last thing I want to do after I do a call is like review the call I just had, right? It's terrible. So that was kind of another big thing. It's like we realized in the moment. So what, two things. One is most of the call doesn't matter. Right. And in fact, this was borne out that we found that like 80% of the call is not highlighted by our users, right? They only highlight like 15 to 20% of calls. And so it's really like, how do we find what those important moments are? And right now, I think, I think long-term AI can figure that out, but right now it can't, right? It's too personal to you. It's too personal in your case, it's too personal to like that, whatever relationship exists on that call. And so we said, well, what if we just give you like a single button to click whenever you hear something that's like, ah, this part of the call is important. And then we do the work to like figure out when that part of the call started and like when it ended and like block off that. And so now what happens is like you're on the call, here's something important, you click the button and then you go back to just having your conversation. And after the call within five seconds, there's the recording. And critically, you can jump back to here's those three to five to six segments that you said, ah, this was where the nuggets of gold were. Jump to them, write your notes, get the clip, send it to Slack, ship it to your CRM. And so that's kind of how the product has evolved to today. That's exactly the point I was going to bring up next, which is sort of finding these nuggets of gold. I mean, I create content for YouTube. After every YouTube session, I go back, I edit it, I create chapters. It sort of requires me to listen to everything again and structure it afterwards. And oftentimes I have some chapters prepared in advance so I can sort of structure it on the basis of that. But let's say you're someone who has an open call, a reference call in a project that you're working on and you don't know where the nuggets of gold are. What's your sort of thinking around the, the perfect customer persona for Fathom? I think you mentioned in the past, salespeople have very structured sales processes. What's the thinking around that customer persona as well as getting to the nuggets? Yeah, I think see most people actually do know, like they know what they're looking for in their conversation. And so they kind of know what's what's going to be interesting, important to them or to the team they want to share this call with. I mean, this is the key thing. It's like, they know we don't, right? I think it's really hard to abstract that and generalize that. And maybe at some point we can on a role base. But yeah, I think 
we've very quickly learned, and this is kind of our hypothesis going in, that it's external calls, right? Because if you have an internal meeting, it's good to have that recorded too. There's some value to that, da, da, da. but you're not likely to be like, let's pull out the segment of us debating this thing and rewatch that again, right? You're going to do more synthesis in the call. And it's also an internal call, perfectly fine for you to be like, hold on, I got to write up our action item from this, right? Or let me, what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is this, great. It's a very different motion. And so we really focus on where are people doing a lot of external calls, customer calls, vendor calls, you name it, right? Because that's where, gosh, it's a limited resource. I can't get this person back on the phone probably, or not very easily, right? So if I miss something, it's kind of gone, right? Especially in sales, can't be like, oh, I, I zoned out for a minute. What did, you know, send a follow-up email, oh, I zoned out. What did you say there, right? So it's a much higher stress environment. And also it's basically the coal face that everyone in the org wants to see, right? Something I learned at User Voice, right? I think I told you at the, like, the end of User Voice, we kind of pivoted, not really pivoted, but like added on this whole other layer, which was not just direct to customer feedback, but feedback that comes by proxy through sales conversations and success conversations. And we found those were super valuable. There's like a lot of like interesting stuff happening there and everyone wants to get access to what's being said on these calls, but no one wants to watch, right? Multiple hours. There's so many hours of those calls generated every week. Everyone wants to be like, what are the nuggets of that? So from both a, you know, percent perspective, but also like where's the most interesting conversations happening in the organization It was always kind of external facing that's, you know, you know, being on a mar at Marketplace, we don't get to 100% choose who the people who sign up are. But certainly we've found that the that, that those groups who have a high number of external calls are much more successful. Yeah, that's interesting because it brings me to my next point, which is, you know, indulge me for a moment here. I've been thinking a lot about remote organizations. I think oftentimes large organizations, they drown themselves in meetings and for new joiners, I think the first couple of weeks or month are often trying to understand what was said in, in previous meetings. I think Fathom in that sense could be, you know, the perfect productivity tool for companies and maybe you're using it already internally to basically structure and optimize on internal meetings, on internal note taking and for new joiners, as well as people who are not at the meeting to get the key takeaways from it. What's your thinking around? how Fathom could fit into fully remote companies. I think a lot of fully remote companies like, like ours actually have a lot less meetings. And I, I think it's important to draw a distinction between like intentionally remote, like intentionally remote from the get-go versus like pandemic remote, right? Like I, I think a lot of people have experience with now working remotely, but you're in these companies where they kind of just dragged all their in-office like ceremonies and protocols into remote work. We have only one all hands standing meeting per week. I only have like three standing meetings on my calendar every week that have more than one person in it. So we actually have very few meetings. That's a reason why I think we haven't focused as much on internal because we think that a lot of these, there's so many times where it's like this meeting could be an email or a loom or a Slack message. And I actually think that's like really helps with the scalability of the organization, right? Because meetings in some ways are, are really kind of like lazy communication medium compared to a really thoughtfully written Google Doc or Loom or whatnot. And so we really push ourselves. We use Fathom for our internal meetings, of course, and, and we do use it to like take notes and, and share things, but we mainly do it when people are out and we're a small enough team or 12 folks. So like that doesn't happen super often. I always am constantly pushing myself. like, how do I cut more of these meetings, right? How do we, how do we have less meetings and more, you know, asynchronous communication? It makes a lot of sense. And when you're personally using Fathom, 
what is sort of your mode of operating? Do you know, okay, I'm going to chit chat a little bit in the beginning, have some small talk and now we're getting to the juicy bits and then you know exactly when to push the record button or basically highlight certain features. What's your day-to-day -day use of the product? Yeah, I, I tend to just kind of like use our like auto record and just like have it recording into the chit chat in the beginning. Because again, I think, you know, the, the tooling and having the ability to highlight, like I'd rather just, sometimes it's easy to forget to turn things on, right? Like one of the things we've learned and so it kind of makes it an exciting product to work on because it's a really like, People, the cognitive load is already high when people are using our product, right? Like, because they're in a Zoom meeting and being in a video Zoom meeting requires a lot of like our CPU power, right? It's very easy to forget to do things or it's hard to get people to remember to like get into a meeting and then start recording. And so as soon as I get on the call, it's recording. I have like an email that gets sent out to people ahead of time. Like, hey, this can be recorded and they can opt out of it if they don't want to be recorded or they can tell me and I can turn it off at any time. So that part's easy and most people don't care. Uh, that's actually one of the biggest challenges. Like, Everyone thinks everyone's worried about being recorded. No one's really worried about it that much, unless it's like some sort of like really like, you know, you're talking to your lawyers about something, you know, nefarious or nefarious adjacent. I have it just kind of come on as soon as I generally start a call. And yeah, and then kind of like, I hear something interesting. My brain has been trained to be like, go click that big button in the right corner and then just keep talking and don't even think about, you know, now I don't think about trying to write the notes on it or anything. I'm just cool. Got it. Like I can feel confident that I can come back to it later. And then the next phase of the product is the sharing. And there we talked about the product-led growth motion and user voice already. And you have a lot of integrations. You have integrations with Slack. You have integrations with Salesforce, with HubSpot. Talk about how crucial these integrations are for the product in, in building the product, how they are used on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I mean, I think for our product, like, integrations are a kind of P1 concern, right? They are a core part of the product because no one wants like another tool they have to go live in, right? And so we kind of want you to live in Fathom while you're on the call alongside Zoom. But after that, we almost look at ourselves as like a way station, right? And it's like, great, you get, you know, you can do any post-call cleanup you want to, you missed a highlight, you want to tweak a note or something. But then you, we got to get it out to the right places, right? We got to get it into that Google Doc where you're keeping all your research notes. We got to get it into the Slack channel of like all the customer wins. We got to get it, and probably most critically, we got to get it into your CRM if you're in sales and success, right? And, and, you know, I mentioned like I ran our sales team for a time. Two things sales team people hate doing. One is like taking notes and two is entering all that data into the CRM. And so... You know, I think we also take this approach in integrations that our integrations should be every bit as high quality as our core product experience. And I don't think that's pretty common. I think there's a lot of just like, there's an integration team that's kind of like, you know, just checking the box. Like, yep, we have a blank integration. It's, it's there. It does something, right? And we really look at that as an extension of our product. In, you know, 2022, we see all the time, people do not want to buy a thing unless it works with everything else they already use, right? We... Everyone now is a pretty savvy SaaS buyer, right? They're not going to, you know, we know that you're, you know, you know, we know that your forever free version is not going to be good enough. We know that your like integrations are going to be checked the box. We're like, there's a lot of cynicism when it comes to SaaS buying. So I think it's really important to like, make sure that we like have really good integrations. And it's also like part of the virality piece, right? Like obviously getting more into the Slack, getting into is how we kind of spread internally within the org. But first, but it's also one of these nice things where it's like, it's not virality for the sake of virality. It's like, first and foremost, it's what the user wants us to do. And the nice byproduct is like, it generates visibility for the product, which gets more signups. 
Let's talk a little bit about the giant that you're in bed with, which is Zoom. You're on their marketplace. You're currently, I think, free, but you're planning on, I think, eventually monetizing through the Zoom marketplace, which is still sort of in the making, a lot of moving parts. Let's talk about becoming accepted on the Zoom marketplace as sort of one of the first cohorts and all the other companies, I think, were larger corps that were accepted. Mm -hmm but also about the platform risk, which is obviously part of being integrated. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think we started the company like September of 2020 and then October of 2020 as Zoom announced, they were building this, this Zoom app marketplace and really the Zoom app, it really, it's like a plugin architecture for Zoom, right? And it's funny because we were trying a couple of ways to go about this and we were actually like building our own Zoom client at one point. And it was very clear that like a plugin architecture was like the right architecture, but Zoom didn't have it. And then so... It was very mixed emotions when they announced it. So we're like, oh my gosh, this is what we, this is perfect. This is what we need to, like, this is perfect for what we're doing. Oh crap, like, but are we going to get shut out? Like, are we not going to be able to get into this? And so again, cold email fortunately got us into the program. We ended up raising money from a bunch of like Zoom's own angel investors. And we're very aggressive about like building as many relationships at Zoom as possible. We were one of the first investments out of their Zoom apps fund. And so I have good relationships with people in a lot of departments at Zoom and they're, you know, a fantastic partner, super accessible for the go for how big that company is. They are super accessible and responsive and things like that. So, yeah. And so, you, you know, there is platform risk, but I think the, you know, the biggest risk always as a startup is distribution risk. And so would I trade platform risk for distribution risk? Hell yeah, I would. Right. Like, and so, you know, we're the number one app in the Zoom app store, a fire hose of signups, you know, which is great. We've, really hone the product a lot in the onboarding process quite a bit because we have enough statistical significance on a daily basis to be able to really test and iterate quickly. We couldn't do that without that partnership. So it's been fantastic. I mean, it's not, you know, without challenges, sometimes I think there's some analogy about like elephants and mice and like, you know, if you're careful, the elephant doesn't step on you. It's not intentional, right? It's like one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite phrases, like, you know, it's not meaning to, it just, yeah, you know, it didn't even see you there. So, but you know, that's why you have to build relationships along with it, right? Make sure you understand where the elephant is looking. I think we really lucked out, frankly, there, right? Because without that thing had never come to light, we would still have to figure out distribution. We had some plans for that, but this is obviously way better, right? I remember going through our YC batch and people were talking about like go-to-market. And I was like, our go-to-market is this platform. Not many new marketplaces open up to a couple hundred million people. This is all we're focused on. Exactly. I mean, it's one of the big fire hoses of the internet and distribution is everything that if you want to get to virality and I think your, your angel investor, Sean, also talked about, you know, when you're dialing into a Zoom call, you know, you have this blank page that comes up and it's basically prime real estate. It gets billions of visits and, you know, Zoom is doing nothing with it at the moment. I mean, they could sell ads all day long and, and you know, I'd buy them. Yeah, I, I'd buy them, you know, <laughs> as we're running against the clock, something I wanted to touch upon is the fundraising journey. And it's not your first time at the rodeo. And I mentioned you were part of the first YC batch. And then during the pandemic, you went through YC again. Talk about, you know, how it changed and how the decision came about. Because I, I assume you had, as a repeat serial entrepreneur, you had other ways of financing it, but you, you decided to go through YC again, sort of this loyalty to the program. Yeah. I mean, I think as going back to my thing of like, you know, trying to speed run, like how do we do all the things faster? And you know, could we have done this without YC? Sure, I'm sure we could. But were we, you know, more than the 7% faster than, 
yeah, the, yeah, basically then their take by doing it. Absolutely. Right. Still, you know, I've got a great network, but it's still accelerated fundraising. And I think also for us, it, <clears throat> there is, you know, I, well, I started user voice in 2008, things have changed, right? Like, so I know how to play this video game, but this video game, there's been a lot of DLC that's come out since I last played this video game. Right. And so now, and I think I mentioned also, you know, a lot of my peers have gone on to do now they run really large companies or they're running VC firms. So I also thought it was really important again for the speed. I, I'm a competitive person and I like need to have kind of like, I need to like have peers that I can learn from, but also kind of like implicitly compete with. And so I think that was one of the big benefits for us of YC was getting back in the arena with the other folks that are in the arena, seeing what tools they're using, seeing what tactics they're employing, because that stuff shifts a lot. Right. And, you know, you know, that that's the kind of stuff where, you know, especially when it comes to like go to market and, and, you know, various startup tactics, by the time there's books written about it or, and lots of blog posts, it's no longer the right thing to do. Right. And so it's like, what are the smart people that are operating from first principle doing about, you know, you know, all these various operational problems and go to market challenges. And so I think that's, you know, the fundraising and getting that cohort was super viable. And yeah, is it different? I joined at the tail end of the original YC batch, right? As an employee. And so I didn't really see kind of like some of that process, but like, is it different going from like eight companies to 358 companies? Yeah, it's a a little different, right? Like I still haven't met probably like more than 25% of the people in my batch, but you know, I I honestly, I think the remote thing was great. Like it's just a different animal. It still has all the core, the core things, right? Like accelerating fundraising, accelerating knowledge transfer and, and like building competitive communities. It's just, you, you just have to work at it now, right? It's not going to, you know, there's a little less serendipity as we mentioned earlier. And so you have to you have to kind of like manufacture your own serendipity a little bit, make sure you go to the local meetups and, you know, ping people randomly on Slack and put yourself out there a little bit. But I think the quality of people is as high or even higher than it's ever been. So. I love it that you showed up there. It reminds me of Tony Hawk, you know, going to the skate rink, public skate rink and trying to see if he can still do the tricks. And, you know, I love it. It it was really funny because uh, Michael Seibel is a good friend of mine. I remember like he did our, you know, you don't know who you're going to get in your interview and you know, four wise partners get onto our, our entrance interview. And it's like Michael Seibel, who I've known for you know 15 years. And then Gustav, who I've known for like 12 years. Like I knew half these people. And then when we, I remember we had the kickoff meeting and all the YC partners are saying hi to me. They're like, oh, hey, Rich. And everyone's like, what? Yeah. So it felt like it's like the old, like I went, what's that Billy Madison, right? Where it's like the old, you know, the old guy going back to, going back to school sort of thing. But it was a fun experience. I love it. Yeah. And I remember when Gustav, made an account in, in, in my startup and that was the most precious account I, I can remember. Yeah. And then let's talk about the, the seed round. And when I looked at the seed round on, on Crunchbase, it looked like the perfect party. Like this is the party I want to be, be part of, you know, 70 people, everybody who's close to the Zoom network, I think was your intention, but it's like the CEOs of Reddit, Twitch, Sean Puri, we talked about but also Zoom with their corporate VC fund. And I think you really optimized for having you know, having a lot of smaller angels and angel checks in there as well, instead of one big firm leading the round. Yep. And, uh, you know, it, what's interesting about that is like, whereas with user voice, there was this street moment in time where we raised 800K and it was really from 90%, like one firm and it all happened in one moment. You know, we kind of leveraged the fact that like fundraising's changed quite a bit. We really raised money every three months since we started. I and mean, I think actually in total now we're up to like, f- close to $6 million raised. And so one strategy was just like constantly be raising money, just use safe notes, kind of ratchet. You know, when you hit a milestone, raise more money, a ratchet valuation a little bit, not, not excessively, 
get some more folks on the team, keep going. The other strategy was as someone who's done this before, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for one loud voice at the table, but I really wanted to kind of, again, create opportunities for serendipity by building like a really big coalition of people. When I send out the investor updates and I have an ask, I'm not asking the five people that invest in us. I'm asking at this point, like 90 people who have invested in us that are really well-connected folks. And I had this kind of theory of investors caring about your startup. It's kind of binary. Either they care or they don't care. And how much they care, it's not like someone writes you a 25K check versus a 50K check. The 50K check cares twice as much as 25K check. They kind of care the same. And so the phrase I used a lot last year was, what's the smallest check you'll write and still care? Because we're trying to get as many people around the table and trying to get as many like advocates as possible. And so there were themes along the way. You know, the first batch was a lot of my network. So it was a lot of like early sort of you know, startup CEOs. Like you mentioned, CEOs of Cruise and Twitch and Reddit and Snapdocs and, and Mercury and, and on and on and on, Clearbit, Product Hunt, et cetera. And then the second, the second cohort was, you know, the next batch was like Zoom associated folks. And then, you know, the next batch around demo day was more, you know, really like more just well-connected angels and, and early stage firms. And then more recently we pivoted and been really focused on like executives, um, sales executives, marketing executives, customer sales executives, CEOs of companies. Like we got the CEO of people AI. So people, you know, now we've sort of honed in on that persona of sales and customer success. Let's go find people that know that market super well, but it's great. I mean, we've got designers, we've got engineers, you know, it's like a very, you know, we've got, it's, it's a really broad coalition of people. So again, I think we've really achieved our goal here where I get to send out this investor update to a very broad audience and, you know, it's worked really well to like, oh, we need a connection to here, or has anyone heard about this? Or what do we think about this tech or da da da? And I, I get great answers for it. So you know, when I looked at it, I was like, this guy likes fundraising. I mean, it's it's not like he wants wants to have a one and done fundraise. You know, <laughs> one meeting, one partner meeting, and be done with it for the next two years. This guy he wants to speak to the investors, and he's doing doing it very strategically. Well, I actually do. Yeah, I I actually do like fundraising. I do feel like it's one of those rare times you. It's hard to get. I think one of the hardest things is to get smart people to critically evaluate your startup. Because there's really no incentive to do it usually, right? You go ask your smart friends, they don't, they're not incentivized to tell you your shit stinks, right? And so I do think it's nice to like, you get in front of people and they tend to like poke on things, which kind of makes you smarter about where am I, where have I not been thinking, right? And, but I also just think it I was also one of those things where like, I never wanted to do the thing where, you know, I've, I had like a, oh, from the get-go, like a five-person team. And so I never thought there was an opportunity where for us to maintain speed, where I could just go do fundraising for six weeks. And so instead of doing this fundraising process where I could do one fundraising process for six weeks, I'd much rather kind of spread that out and basically do a few calls every week over, you know, over a couple different batches with a 70% success rate and just, you know, kind of de-risk it that way, right? It's like, I'm not waiting on yes or no on the entire round. I'm de-risking by slowly collecting money as we go. And I think that's worked out really well for us. Absolutely. So Rich, as we're running against the clock, what does the future hold for Fathom? What are you working on? How do you want to scale it up? And what sort of the next two, five, 10 years look like for you in your head? What also excites me about this product is that like, there's a lot of technical depth to it. You know, we're deep into like scaling challenges and things like this, but we also are constantly shifting based upon when there's like new technological breakthroughs. And so we're actually doing a lot of stuff now with AI, like putting more AI into the product. It's one of those things where like, we knew from the beginning to be AI. We knew like we'd add more over time and we're adding more AI over time. And our goal, like, you know, we still have this human in the middle clicking the button, but our goal is increasingly, 
what are all the things we can do around that? One, can we eventually get you to not have to click the button? But two, can we also detect things you wouldn't have otherwise detected? Um, there's just a lot of depth to this product that's coming out in terms of our goal being, we want you to be on a Zoom call, actually be a way better experience than even an in-person meeting, right? We want you to feel like when you get on a Zoom call with Fathom, you are like putting on your Iron Man suit, right? And you have just all this like insight, intelligence so that you can just kind of like, you feel like you are rocking that call. You're, you know, you're not stressed out. You know, the person's paying attention. You don't have to write notes. You know, your team's involved. I'll give you a hit of like, one of the things we're really excited about is like, how do you do collaboration with people not on the call? So, you know, one of the things salespeople and successful people run into all the time, I'm on a call, customer asks ask me a question I don't know. Well, usually I've got like all up after the call, go find the answer, circle back with them. What if instead I click a button inside Fathom, immediately the question is shipped to my engineering team in a Slack room. They watch within 10 seconds, they're watching that question. Within 30 seconds there, I'm getting a pop-up with the answer and also a, do I want this person to join the meeting and answer the question? Right? Like that's that kind of yeah. feels like, that's feels like the Iron Man suit. So it's stuff like that, that we're, we're, we're really focused on. What's the Tom Cruise movie where, where he sits and, and navigates, uh, oh, like minority report, minority report. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right. So I love it. I love it. That's, that's the next chapter for Fathom. I think it's a great idea. All right. So we've recorded an hour now, full arc of your story from, you know, starting with Kiko user voice and now Fathom, I think it's super exciting. I think you're a, an incredibly curious mind, product builder, engineer, creative mind. I, I love it. And uh, thanks a lot for, for being here with us today. Where can people find out more about Fathom and what sort of the, the CTAs, the calls to action for you? Yeah. So if you go fathom.video slash pod, you can, you know, Fathom's completely free. We do plan to monetize in the future, but not on this version. So you can feel comfortable being like committing to this product. We're not going to extract dollars out of you. We'd love for you to sign up. And then if you want to reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to cold message me or cold email me. I'm rich at fathom.video. You know, I've my, made my career on cold email. So I would be a real, I'd be really doing myself a disservice if I didn't answer, do the same for others. So. And you have a NFT as, as a picture on LinkedIn, right? <laughs> it's actually not an NFT. It's just that uh, we we made all 8-bit emojis of everyone on the team. We call them pixel peeps. And it's just like when you join the team, you get your little pixel peep. And at some point I was just like, oh, this is way better than just carrying around headshots all the time. That's great that you're not shilling your your NFT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I have an NFT. Gosh, <laughs> someone, someone's done some identity theft. Good, good on them. But no, no, I just, I have a very modern and you know you're getting older so I, I might as well digitize myself before you know it's very clear that i'm getting older love it richard thanks so much for being with us today yeah thanks for having me it's been great